Welcome to Liminal Theology, a podcast exploring boundaries, transitions, and being in between. I'm your host, Jonathan Best, and join me as we journey into liminal space. On this episode of Liminal Theology, it's my pleasure to introduce my special friend, the Reverend Dr. Sonia B. Williams, Associate Dean of Students at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Sonia holds a PhD in practical theology from St. Thomas University in Miami, Florida, and is an ordained minister of the United Church of Christ. Welcome to the show, Sonia. I'm happy to have you as a guest today. Uh, Sonia and I met in our doctoral studies in Miami, and we were part of the same cohort group. And I'm especially excited to reconnect with you and learn about the work you're doing. It's great to see you, and I'm, again, happy to have you today. Oh, gosh, Dr. Best, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here with you today and just to kind of reconnect and reflect over uh, good times and uh, whatever else you have on your mind for us today. Uh, it's always a good being with you. Uh, likewise, I, I, I know you have a lot of wisdom to share and eager to talk about some some very important questions to tackle today. But to start things off, I, I always, I sometimes like to ask guests to share their own faith story. I think stories can be a good way to begin a conversation and learn about what led you to where you are today. And so I'd like to begin with a, just a simple question of how did you get involved in theology and what have been some of your key points in your theological journey? Thank you so much. Uh, you know, really, I've been doing the work of theology, if we want to use the word work. Uh, I know that's a dangerous word in theology. Uh, but the, the practice of it, the praxis of theology has been a lifelong um, a thing that my family has just really brought me into. So I recall, you know, uh, starting church, and I grew up in the denomination of Church of God in Christ, which is Pentecostal. Uh, I lived on the house on the corner. My church was literally across the street from my home. Uh, and so every time the doors was open at the church, I was there. Uh, Sunday service morning, Sunday night, Tuesday, Bible band, and Friday night services, and of course, choir practice on Sunday, or Saturday, I'm sorry. Uh, so those was the, the church that I grew up in, but how I kind of came to understand church more so was through the activities or the things that my mom would have me to do during the course of the week. So every Sunday, Sunday was family day. It was a very important day in which she would cook uh, a huge meal, uh, which now I understand to be that we were poor. I didn't know that at the time, but it always consisted of beans and cornbread and maybe fried chicken or something of, of that sort. But no matter what, we always cooked something for the stranger. We always cooked more for the immediate family that was intended to eat. And after dinner was over, she would uh, make an, a plate, cover it in saran wrap, and she would hand it to me, and it was my job to take it to a neighbor. It was my job to take it to the woman down the street, Sister Hensley, or Mother So-and-So, where I would go and knock on a door and not only deliver the plate, 
but it was my job to sit there and to hold a conversation with this adult while they partake in this meal. And so uh, early on, it was the beginnings of building community, uh, being there for one another, what we have, we share. And so using that, uh, having those past memories and understanding along with, you know, the Bible knowledge that was held into the church and just putting those things together, I didn't know that there was any other way. You know, when I would go to school and hang out with the kids, uh, I always said, so what are you all doing Sunday? Or what is your church? And what time is your choir practice? Because I thought that was a way of life. I didn't know that it was optional for some people. Uh, so my life has always been in the life of the church. I think there's something very beautiful about the way you describe that your life really was so connected to church and, and still is. Um, and that sense of community that you're describing, um, I think that speaks volumes, I think, at about uh, theologically about who you are. And I imagine that still carries on today, correct? That sense of community? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, for quite a while, I've done almost a a decade of hospice care uh, where I sat at the bedside of people who have been terminally diagnosed. And uh, I've had people ask me time and time again, how can you do that? Isn't that hard? Isn't that scary? Um, And I find it to be a joy. Um, Even more interesting is that I didn't know that it was a profession. If you think back to a few minutes ago, that's what I've done all my life. That's what mom told me to do was go and sit at the bedside of someone, go and help feed someone. And so when I grew up and found out that that's something that I could do, it helped be a midwife to someone transitioning. Um, If I could go and help feed their soul or even add some joy for that day, um, it has, it has continued on. And even, you know, beyond that, when we want to talk about community, uh, a a few minutes ago, I was telling you that today is kind of the first day of on the new job. Um, I am uh, been promoted just today as um, dean of students. And so that's where uh, the community hub is for the institution. Right. So I'm looking at not only the pedagogy that's in the classroom, but how does that translate? Uh, into a sense of community. And so absolutely, I'm still looking and building on how can we be a better community. Well, let me be one of the first to congratulate you on your new position. And I think the way that you described it, you know, connecting to a community of students sounds like it's a perfect fit for you. I love it. (laughs) I do. So I want to move into some other questions that I wanted to talk about the day and that I shared with you beforehand, before our conversation. And I think it fits in well the way you're describing community theologically. And I think a lot of these questions connect to that sense of rediscovering our global community, our community uh, that seems to be under a, a strain of tension. I wanted to ask you about how you would describe this moment we are in as a nation, as a society. Given the overwhelming global response we've seen through the Black Lives Movement, how would you characterize this moment in time? And perhaps, since we've already been talking about this, how would you you frame this theologically within the context and community, perhaps? Thank you for that. 
you know, that is a powerful question, and I so enjoy just reading it. <laughs> I read it several times, and uh, I was intentional on not um, not putting this to words or, or in writing because what I'm finding is that every day with new information arising that uh, it is okay for our minds to change, for it to be uh, influenced um, as we get more knowledge. And it's, it's okay for us to change our minds. But where do I find the nation right now? I'm believing that this is a nation that's on hospice. Mm. Uh, wow. You know, that, that sounds daunting, and, but yet it's true. Um, some find themselves in a place of despair, but being uh, in hospice chaplain for almost a decade, I find that there's hope in the by and by. African Americans spoke of paradise or the heaven to come, but Psalm 23 demands of us to create a heaven here on earth. And so if that is true, if we're looking at uh, this nation that is divided or when we see people who are in this place of uh, despair where they, they think that they're dying, uh, whether the, their consciousness is, or their position in life is dying because they are losing the sense of power or because they are dying at the hands of police brutality. Uh, or right now we're in the midst of a, a pandemic, COVID-19. So we're surrounded by death. We're surrounded by these uh, positions where we are having to make decisions. And, and it's not just in our household. It's not even just our community that's blocked, but it's, it's global. This is in the nation and it's, and it's global. Now, where do I find ourselves in this moment? I don't find this to be a moment of, I'm not ready to buy my casket. I'll put it that way. Uh, um, I'm, I'm finding that uh, that something can be birthed out of this moment. Um, I, I wrote a dissertation on loneliness, and it was an encouragement uh, to for people to listen to people at the end of life, to listen to their stories, their narratives, because we understand that there's not just one story. And if we put that towards this nation, there is not just one story. So if we all slow down long enough to listen to the stories of one another, uh, if we can bring all of our prejudices, all of our hurts, all of our understandings to one place and have a real discussion, I believe that we can find a new horizon. I believe that there is something beyond this moment, whether we want to call it paradise, by and by, or a birth of a new nation, I do believe that is possible. But it takes us being real with ourselves and finding the willingness to come and accept what is happening in this moment. Your characterization of a nation, of a nation on hospice, I thought was particularly powerful. And a connection that I, I haven't, heard but makes perfect sense i see how those two issues are connected hospice and racism are both conversations absolutely both conversations that we have difficulties you know engaging with um, hospice centering around death 
Many of us are particularly uncomfortable with death. Many of us are also particularly uncomfortable with the topic of racism and to engage in a conversation about that. And there seems to be also another connection of this hospice motif. So I was thinking about it, you know, many of the, many of the systems and things that we hold on to, there's this question of, should they die? Is there, is there a birth after that of a, of a new kind of a new transition from death into a new type of life, uh, a life that is more, um, accepting a life that is more willing to engage in conversation. I don't know. There's a lot of things for me that I'm thinking about as you connected hospice with the current situation that we're in. I'm wondering how this also connects with the church's role. What does black lives matter mean for the church? And if perhaps if we thought of this as a moment of, hospice, a moment of attending, of care, you know, what that might mean for the church's response. The church is great at visiting the sick. I wonder if there is a way that the church can also be convinced that it needs to visit this issue um, and visit with those who have been marginalized, those who are suffering. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you know, it's so much that I can say in that, and I want to, I think I want to start with uh, the latter, is how is the church attending? How, what is the church doing? And uh, when they attend to the sick, you know, they show up. Uh, but I, I'm going to dare to say that the church is doing a terrible job at it, right? Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm a church girl. I love the church. I do, thoroughly. But it is places where we can be better and do better. And when we attend to the, to the sick, whether it's on a hospice floor in a hospital or whether it's at the bedside and the deacon is going to pray with someone in their home, we have to do more than just pray them well, right? So I'm a chaplain, mm. I'm a dean of students, I'm a, um, you know, but if everyone just sees me as a person who shows up in prayer, then that becomes a dangerous thing for the church, for everyone else. If you look at all of the traumatic uh, killings and terrorist things that's happening in the nation, what do we say? Oh, you're in my prayers and thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that becomes so dangerous. It's, it's a cliche now, and it's almost a cursing to that individual because the question becomes, what are you doing? You know, where have you been? Do you see what is happening in this moment? What is next? And so I find that that is the same thing that's happening in the church. We're, we're dying and all you're doing is praying for us. And so my question becomes, have you prepared us for this moment? Right? Have you prepared anyone to die? Who has taught you how to die? And I think that that's a vital question uh, for both the nation and for the church. Right? Who, mm -hmm. who is preparing us in this moment? And that's something that we have to really consider. Um, it's not about living our best life now. It's not about more abundant living. It's not about wealth and our pockets overflowing, right? But for those who subscribe to Christianity 
And we say that when you die, you're going to that great place. You're going to a heaven far away. Well, in order to get there, one must die. Hmm. If they follow the plight of Jesus Christ himself, went through the garden, carried the cross, and hung on the cross, said it is finished, and died. We, too, have our own cross to bury. We, too, must die. And so those hard conversations, just as you spoke of, racism, death, uh, all have to be spoken of. Now, what does Black Lives Matter have to do with the church? It has everything to do with the church. Today, I'm finding more and more as I read, as we find ourselves in this place of anti-racism, uh, creating pedagogy, creating ways of being with one another. Black Lives Matter is the organization or the movement that is waving their hands, just screaming out, saying, hey, there's danger ahead. There is danger ahead. Listen, listen, there's danger. And if that's so, then that means that the church needs to pause to listen. That means that the institutions of academia needs to pause and listen. The church, our households, those are varying understandings. If there's danger, then that's danger for all, not for just one. And I think that that's what Black Lives Matter is really screaming out, trying to say that there's danger ahead for all of us. So let us collectively come together, become a part of a movement to avoid that place of danger. Mm. And so whether it's the church or these institutions that are built on white supremacist models and understandings, they have left out the voice of the person of color, of the Asian American, of the black American, of the Native American. And when we have left those voices out, then we are not able to see and hear the signs that are up ahead that says danger is near. And so I'm calling on each one of those institutions to slow down and listen. What you're describing, the need to listen, I think is so important today. And I think it's one of the reasons we're in such a mess today is this idea, this, well, this inability to listen to one another and particularly so for the church. Um, I'm often very concerned of the church's inability to listen, to stay isolated, to be comfortable within its own walls. Do you think this is a turning point for the church? Is this church, in your experiences, particularly the white church, the evangelical church, do you think it's it's finally ready to listen? I know we've been through this kind of cycle of violence for many years now and black lives has been black lives matter has been active for several years my worry my fear is that the church still will not listen do you find that there are any signs of hopefulness in terms of the church's willingness to listen is this a turning point for its theology you know um great question thank you um is this the turning point it is the turning point, absolutely. And so even if we continue on the uh, using hospice as an example, 
because one is admitted onto a hospice program does not necessarily mean that one is going to die. Mm -hmm. It just means that it has been diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So whether we are going to talk about the people within the nation, right now, this moment, we have diagnosed the nation of saying something is wrong. We have diagnosed the church and we are screaming something is wrong. And so I do believe that there is hope available where something can come of this and change. But the church has had a terrible time listening. Um, for so often, um, academia, the church have found themselves to be universities within themselves. They know it all, right? Um, and so when we know it all, when we are narcissistic, we tend not to listen to others. Is this a turning point? Absolutely. Is there hope available? Absolutely. A few years back, they were talking about the black church specifically, and the question was, is the black church dead? Professors and preachers came out emphatically saying, the church is not dead. And so they began to look and began to model and say, you know, this is a different time and we need to make some changes. And so to this day, the black church is alive and well. Now, when we talk about mainstream, when we talk about the big five, when we talk about any of those, we're still on hospice. There's still, it's the, the jury is still out if they're going to survive this. Because the people who are doing the work are not necessarily subscribing to any particular religion. Or it might be a combination of those things. And so the people who are doing the work, who are out on the pavement, if they really begin to understand that the institution has colonized them or have pushed them in a certain direction that is deviant to what it is that they believe and understand and is working towards, then there is not a whole lot of survival left, right? Um, but what I'm finding is uh, even particularly in my institution and others around the country is that they are, are beginning to have those conversations of saying, hmm, let us look at the history of this institution who's been around for 170 years and we have continued to model that same uh, law that was put into place 170 years ago when it was designed for a people that look very different than the ones who walk the halls today, then maybe we need to pay attention. And so that's what I'm seeing. Uh, there are lists that are going around, demands, just like Black Lives Movement has demands. There are deans and presidents that have such demands. There is a list going around of Black deans and presidents. There's another one that says that there are white deans and presidents who are in support and each one of those lists are demanding that they look at the structures and the things that are in place that they continue to impose upon others unjustly. So if people continue to look and listen, I'm believing that the action will be different at the end. So I'm hopeful that things will change. This point of diagnosing, I think, is very relevant today, given the current situation with COVID-19. You know, you made this strong point about the nation has been, di we've diagnosed the nation, 
there is a there is a sickness within our society within our culture and i think we've we've tried to ignore as as often we do with with sicknesses and illnesses we often ignore ignore them in our own bodies we pretend everything is okay or we take something that perhaps treats the symptoms rather than getting to the underlying cause you know and you made this point but connecting you know the situation between the church and the academy which i think are very much in in similar positions they're both positions of power and positions of privilege and attend to self-isolate um, and unfortunately ignore the wider problem ignore the disease that is occurring outside of its walls outside the church outside the academy you know you, part of that is understanding and listening and listening to what's happening how do we treat the disease we have the diagnosis i think i think it's so evidently clear that there's something very very systemically wrong within our society within our nation regarding racism regarding police brutality um, and a host another host of other issues as well that's all connected to that um, economic inequality you know you made the point earlier of the church you know sometimes sending thoughts and prayers as as kind of a cliche right. perhaps acknowledging it we 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 think something's wrong we we know something's wrong but we're not going to really do anything besides send you our good feelings how does the church and and the academy as well move toward a more active state move toward really addressing the problem and may maybe even working with those who are not necessarily a part of any church movement or any religious movement. Is this a new turning point for new partnerships, new cooperations, new alliances being made outside the church walls, outside the the walls of the academy? Absolutely. Absolutely. So right now what COVID has done, COVID has and continues to teach the church that they need to be the church without the building. We all are at home on Sunday morning. We are able to flip on Facebook and watch four Sunday services in a day. We're able to see all types of calibers of preaching and worship experiences. And what I'm finding is that um, I am tuning more into the ones who um who have been on these platforms for a longer time and those tend to be the people who have been casted out of the church have not been accepted by the church or who chooses to be so authentic in such a way where they don't quite have a space in the church and so what this means is that in creating partnerships that the churches are now the people not the building are reliant upon nonprofit organizations they're reliant upon neighbors and the intentional creation of friendship they are uh, having to be intentional and in partnerships to get things done uh, they're looking at things in a new way um, how, how to make this change come about? I think that was part of the question I was hearing is 
there has to be some internal work. Um, I think so often in some of our theologies or some of our understandings, if, if we do enough work, and if we do enough charity, then God might be pleased enough to let us in, right? Uh, referring to heaven, right? But there needs to be some internal work, and the internal work is a difficult work to really listen to yourself and examine ourselves, become self-aware enough to understand and see the impositions and how we use our privileges in such a way to hurt others, to hold others back. Uh, sometimes it's used in a way of saying, I'm protecting you, or I know better. Uh, but once again, there is not one story, there, which means that it's not one way. Now, how do we do that? One is doing the internal work of uh, figuring out where you are, being real and honest um, with oneself. And then finding groups that you can be accountable to and to do some work together. Well, this is what I'm thinking. But that doesn't happen outside of circles of trust. It, it just doesn't. Uh, and that can be difficult to find, but I'm encouraging folks to do that. Now, once that happens, then I believe that we can go into uh, other spaces that then we are then willing to uh, work with people who are other or different. Okay. And when I say we, I'm speaking of the people in the places of power and privilege. Now, my fear is that we'll say, you know what, uh, if uh, the person who might be white or in a places of power, you know what, I'm going to hire this black individual. And so now I'm diverse. We've, we've put this place, this in place. But what happens is, is that uh, the places of power still work in a silo, and then they will put that other minority in another silo, and they're having them to work independently from one another. And so they're still not going to create something new. It's the same old engine still running. But recently I heard something that's called the third space. And that third space is when you're able to have both of those groups come together in such a way where they have to integrate, intermingle, and listen. So then that way they can begin to create something new. Uh, and so that something new is what is going to allow the nation to be rebirthed which is going to allow the church to continue on. But it's not until the creation of something new, we cannot continue to perpetuate the systems that are in place, the structures that are in place, while they have done a great job, supposedly thus far, uh, it is not helping the community as a whole. And so if the goal is really to be community, if it is for everyone to be able to experience freedom and live within a place, a safe place of justice, then we have to create a new. And, you know, I'm going to push the mark a little bit and say that that is why Generation Z is out there burning everything down, right? They're burning it down because they have the understanding that something new has to be created, that there is no ownership, there's no freedom, no justice in what is right now. And as long as those structures continue to be in place, then they're going to have to continue to fight to be seen, to be heard, to be recognized, to be, to be able to live as humane, 
And so they're burning it down and mm -hmm. saying, hey, let's try again. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's not until we create something new that we can begin to heal the nature. My name is Jonathan Best, and this has been Liminal Theology. Learn more at liminaltheology.org. Thank you.